And hello, you are listening to Objection to the Rule. Hello, everybody. We normally have a theme song that's incredibly great, but I'm not pulling it up correctly. Um, Perhaps because our wonderful normal host, Emily Scott, Emily Scott, Emily Scott, is out of town or for this show. So much apologies for that. However, we do have a good show for you. Do we not, Teresa? Yes, we do. So in the studio today, can you hear me, Matt? Yes, I can. All right. We're in with Matt and, of course, myself and Jasmine's on the way. And Zoe is here as well. How's everybody doing this week? Doing pretty good. Zoe is our uh, our newest member. Um, aren't you, Zoe? Would you like to jump on mic? <laughs> she says she's not ready. Zo- Zoe's been helping us with some social media stuff. Um publicizing some of the great work and stories that we're reporting on, and I'm excited for it. Sounds good. So, Matt, why don't we just jump right into the local news? Yes, local news is coming up. Okay, so this is a story that I put together. Oh, I didn't put together the story, reporting on some wonderful stuff that uh, Yahoo.com brought to my attention. It's kind of a boring story, but I wanted to use it to... uh, uh, as an example of some larger problems. Okay, so we're talking about Starbucks. Yes, I know this is incredibly... Interesting uh, place to start there. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, do you have any opinions on Starbucks? Is that is it just like an institution that just kind of exists in your mind? I'm not the biggest fan of Starbucks, to be honest with you. Um, it all tastes like McDonald's to me. You know what I mean? Like that regular schmegular. Well, so, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with McDonald's? Uh, it's, well, there's many things wrong with McDonald's. But we, <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Yeah. But um, it, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't taste like gourmet or anything like that. It's for the cost. It's not exactly. It costs a lot. I like gourmet things. Don't you? Good. Well, you're gonna like this piece. It's it's a bit of a make from the Starbucks. Okay. Okay. So how do we compete, or how to compete with Starbucks? I don't know. Starbucks seems chill and benevolent. And we forget it's a massive business that has, depending on your worldview slash taste, stomped out all competition. How to compete with Starbucks? How does Starbucks compete in the first place? They didn't reinvent coffee or anything. Starbucks is this inoffensive middle ground. Their logo is a naked sea lady. Or she might be wearing a turtleneck. I don't know. And maybe that's the point. The coffee is either blasé or good. I can't tell if their drinks are literally really well made or just like really boring regardless starbucks has up until this point been killing it and the point of this article from yahoo.com is that one guy is trying to compete with starbucks and how do you do that china luckin coffee is an incredibly successful chain in china its business model is to double down on speed and sell simply coffee quickly Luckin uses a pop-up model so that it can expand with great speed, and the stores take up little space, 11 by 11 feet. But if it's in China, they'd probably do that in metric. (laughs) So other real estate hurdles are easier to, well, I guess, hurdle. Max Crowley visited China and saw Luckin Coffee and decided, let's try this in New York City. Max's chain is called Bandit. You can order... You can pre-order on your phone, and even if you don't do that, it will only just take about a minute to get a coffee or one minute and 40 seconds for a latte. So I guess there's a big market for getting coffee really quickly. And 
So why am I talking about all of this? Yes. Why are you talking about this, Matt? Okay. I guess I was just a bit curious because I didn't really, <clears throat> I was curious on how someone competes with Starbucks, this kind of big institution, but mostly because currently we're in a new age of monopolies. Amazon is massive. Energy companies tower above us like temperamental elephants. Anheuser-Busch owns a massive 46% of the global beer market. And many more names that you haven't even heard of because not every business wants you to know its name. Companies eat up other companies and merge into entire markets of their own. But because they have multiple brand names, we don't really even realize that it's just one big company. I mean, the rum company isn't just Bacardi. Or, yeah, the rum brand Bacardi isn't just Bacardi. Bacardi owns Great Goose, Patron, Bombay Sapphire, Gin. I mean, on the Wikipedia page, which you know, don't want to be leaning on Wikipedia. But on Wikipedia, I saw 41 sub-brands under Bacardi. So it looks like this whole market, but it's, you know, just a couple players involved. The Gap is also Banana Republic, Old Navy, and Athleta, plus other brands that are smaller. So my point is, in the age of monopolies, who can compete with Starbucks? Maybe a startup based on a Chinese company, or maybe... It's that competing competition is the problem. People have been decrying the death of small businesses where the employees get to choose the music that they actually listen to and the owners live in the actual city that their business is. Does New York City need another coffee chain? My opinion is obviously not. But I was curious about what my uh, co-host's feelings would be on this. Am I just being a curmudgeonly anti-competition uh, anti-capitalist person or do you think there's any merit to that? Well, you can be like a happy, great, positive anti-capitalist person. <laughs> you don't, it doesn't have to be, you know, bad all the time, right? Because you don't like um, capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I guess if the coffee is, it depends on how it tastes. Because like I said, whatever we're getting from Starbucks, it is not gourmet. It tastes like it's, you know, I used to be a barista. It actually tastes like they didn't rinse out the um, coffee pots every once in a while. It just tastes old to me. Mm. Like even when it's freshly brewed, it has this like aged coffee taste. <laughs> I feel like I've seen something in the news recently with um, Starbucks not doing particularly well, or like having like losing business, closing some stores, like yeah. closing some stores, like making some cuts um, higher up. But I, I do think one thing that Starbucks is good for and that people rely on it for is um, Wi-Fi, a restroom in a place where you can stay. So I think like if you have something similar, that's probably like cheaper, maybe not so corporate, maybe has more of a neighborhood feel like that will draw people. But now it's kind of like, that's your option. Like you, you need a bathroom. You're not like able to spend a lot of money. You can go on a Starbucks. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right about that. They do kind of have a community building sort of vibe. Yeah. That's, that's entirely true on uh, the last Saturday Night Live, I think Michael Che made some joke about like the world's biggest Starbucks and like made a joke of how, how it was like a destination as like a public bathroom. Yeah, I mean, which is important, you know, like there's so many places, you know, everybody's got to go. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes Might as well go to Starbucks. So, you know, it's it does serve like a, a an important community function, even though it's not like a small community business. So I think it, it, there is like opportunity for other places to tap into that and be that for their community instead of relying on a giant 
you know, massive change. Well, like across bathrooms are us. Wouldn't that be great if there was just like a, <laughs> where do you, where do you guys go to the bathroom for when you, when you're out and you need a public bathroom? I got Whole Foods. There's one uh, like in Union Square. A library. I, I tend to a go lot. to the library. Oh, that's a good one. The library. Um, Anywhere that will let me. <laughs> where the where the door's not coded. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's a weird issue, and I, I think it's I think it's a real real indicator of of how we're choosing to the type of world we want to live in. If the public bathrooms are mostly private industries, then we're literally saying public policy or public um, resources will be taken care of the, by the private market. And when Whole Foods and Starbucks does that. And the library does too. But the last time I went to the library, it was the, the bathroom was too small. Uh, right. And so there was a big line. So I had to go like walk a mile and, and find like a... Um, a suitable location to go in. Yeah. And they make you... Yeah, I don't know. I feel guilty when I walk in and like don't buy anything or... Yeah. And like they can very easily just turn you away. You know, like that's definitely like they like the look of one person. They'll let them go. They don't like the next one. So they don't. So yeah, it's it's an issue. Well, shout out to Starbucks for always letting us use the bathroom, right? Yeah, yeah, nine times out of ten, you know. They had that controversy or something about, like, not letting people in. or, But now they have to, like, you don't have to buy something. Well, it's still coded, though. Isn't the bathroom still coded? Yeah, like, you have to ask someone who works there to give you a number so you can enter it. Mm. All right, well, yeah, we'll see how this coffee does. Let us know when you try it, Matt. Yes, yes. Um, the, the the incredible, really quick, really quick coffee fix. Uh, next local story, we have Jasmine and uh, we're talking about school integration. And that's something that's been, I, I've been learning a little bit more about. Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to, to hear uh, what you've gathered in the past week. So tell us about these upcoming protests. Okay, so this is a protest that actually happened this past Monday. Um, so this is Jasmine, by the way. I, I wasn't here at the hey top girl. of the hour. She made it. Finally. I made it. Planes, trains, automobiles. The L train is terrible. Anyway, <laughs> so school integration, it sounds like it's something of the past, but it's really not. Um, New York City is the country's largest school district, but it's extremely segregated. So this past Monday morning, a group called Teens Take Charge led dozens of students from New York's Chelsea Career and Technical Education High School and NYC I School, that's I with a little I, in a walkout touted as a strike for integration. So these are students that are, they are from two separate schools, but they share a building and they have vastly different um, educational experiences. And they've joined this group and are part of a new campaign called Education Unscreened, and they're voicing demands for an end to school segregation in the city. So the plan is for every Monday until their demands are met to have a different strike in a different campus location within New York City. So this one happened in downtown Manhattan on Spring Street. Uh, just one of their demands is to get rid of admission screens in high school because you know, a lot of things that are supposed to be or people claim that they're objective or neutral, they really aren't. So of the city's 30 most academically screened um, high school, 27 are majority white and Asian. None of these 30 schools approach the system average for economic need. 
And on the other hand, hundreds of unscreened schools like where there aren't like admissions tests and things are at least 85% black or Hispanic and 85% low income. So their demands include getting rid of admission screens, including state exam scores, GPA, attendance, punctuality, zip code, portfolio, in-person interviews, auditions, and specialty exams. So they're hoping to adopt something called the educational option admissions method, which ensures a balanced mix of high, middle, and low-scoring students. So um, their list of demands actually goes further than that. Uh, if you just Google education unscreens, like you'll be able to see all of them, but that's the number one thing that they have. Okay. Um, Monday strike was organized for 1,800 seconds because there are 1,800 New York City public schools. Um, as I mentioned before, the students that were protesting are from, they go to school in the same building every day, but they have like very segregated experiences even within that school. So one has one school, the NYC iSchool uses admission screening is 41% white and 40% low income. The Chelsea CTE school doesn't have screening is, and is only 4% white and 80% low income. Um, one senior who didn't want to be photographed, like in the article that I got this from, but she was comfortable speaking, said, I knew loosely about the iniquities and I knew about underfunded schools, but I didn't really know the extreme of it until I joined Teens Take Charge. I had never talked to anyone from Chelsea until then because our schools are so segregated, like everything in our schedule seems designed to not overlap. So even when they change course classes, like from one period to the next, like it's staggered so that they're not even. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure maybe some of it has to do with congestion. Like you can't have everyone in the halls at the same time. But right. the fact that you can be side by side technically with people, but you're having such vastly different experiences is it's it's shocking. Yeah. Um. And one other student that was interviewed named Charles Footman, who's a senior at Chelsea CTE, says that he feels disadvantaged compared to the students at NYC iSchool, which is just across the hall. He says, I feel like I've had to work harder in this school than I would in another school with better resources. I've worked hard to get 90s in math all year, but I can't get my SAT scores to what college admissions are looking for. So students at the end of the protest, like they went back to class through the same doors at the same time, which they typically never get to do because mm -hmm. of the way their schedules are. So, yeah, it was um, it sounds like a headline from 1952, right. but it's not. It's alive and well, um, even though we tend to think of New York as a super progressive liberal place like there are still a lot of um, obstacles that exist to having truly like integrated, like equitable school systems. So do you think um, admissions tests and screenings are inherently biased? I do. Hmm. I do. Like, I think um, things like interviews, like having a portfolio, taking certain tests, like there's people that have resources to prep for those things aggressively. Yeah. There's people who come from a household where their parents went through that, like, you know, like I, this wasn't my experience, but there's people that, you know, the second that they have a baby, they already have mapped out like you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And they have a lot of resources to make those things happen. Yeah. And that, <clears throat> you know, you might have another family situation where, you know, not for lack of love, but like that's not 
your experience, like you should be able to just send your child to whatever the nearest public school is and expect that they get a quality education. Yeah, Matt, what do you think? Do you think the test, the admission standards <coughs> testing is biased for young students? Um, entirely. It's. I was just thinking of uh, when, when Jasmine, when you, when you were just saying that last bit, there was an episode of On the Media, uh, which is a great, uh, great show. And they had a guest on who was talking about how the word meritocracy, mm-hmm. as we use it now, means, oh, we are a, uh, a, a non-classist, non-racist institution that does everything based on merit. But apparently the term when it was invented was a sarcastic term mm-hmm. following, uh, I think maybe it was in the UK, but it was like following the, uh, the, the aristocrats, aristocracy. They invented a new way of like talking about why uh, certain people would be great at horseback riding, ignoring the fact that you need like to have a horse. Yeah, <laughs> right. more you know, access like, to thereof. Yeah, it's, it's like the merits, you know, that it's it's the merits, and and I think that we've we've lost track of of the the concept of equality and and uh, by by pretending things are just merit based, and so tests are just a very uh, even now an outdated way of assessing students anyway. But if if you have a nice cold thing like data to hide behind you can say it's not it's not me i mean sure all the results end up being uh enforcing segregation and and keeping uh students from being able to have the same quality of education but it's it's not me it's just like the numbers you know like numbers aren't racist well i have mixed feelings about this um i definitely auditioned i went to perform in art school so in that case there was um an opportunity for me to prepare for that experience which i was in like sixth grade so there was no real preparation except for you know don't get a cold and practice a song or two Mm -hmm. but there was another school um in my hometown walnut hills which was the academically number one school so the performing arts school was number two walnut hills was number uh number one we actually had to take a test so it was encouraged that students all over cincinnati took the test the walnut hills test as we called it Mm -hmm. to see if you could get in but it was for high school Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like, OK, if you really want to be considered in that top percentage rate. And I think the school was, um, you know, pretty mixed. I'm not sure what those what the demographics of it are now. But I do feel that um, parents should be able to push their students a little bit more if they want to do something that's highly achievable for not to say a regular school, because I don't want to like be elitist like that. Um, but for public schools, I don't think that the testing should be um, rigorous. But I do think it is sometime a, a potential for students to reach higher when they have standards that they're trying to reach. Mm. You guys, so, get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, but what would happen with students that don't do well on those tests, though? Like, yeah. And there's a lot of things that go into testing that might like inherently be difficult. Like, say, if you're disabled, if English isn't your first language. Like, there's right. so many things that aren't taken into consideration, and when you have that type of system there's always going to be someone at the bottom and then where do they go you know and I I do think that it it can be useful to have mixed classrooms like so that you don't encourage the idea that like you're better you're special so you can all help each other to learn yeah you know so I do see a big problem with the students not even 
being in relation with one another based on the yeah. time. Like that sounds really absurd. Like they only had prom to like this article was um, from the 74 million.org. If you're interested in reading, uh, reading it yourself and seeing images, but they only saw each other. Like they had prom and they also had sports. And then that was it. Wow. Even though they're in the same building, you That's know, crazy. so I think that may have been some of what pushed them to be like, you know what? Yeah. Like we should join in with that because it's in their face. Mm hmm. But not really. Yeah. Whereas, you know, maybe if you're physically very distant, you might not see it as an issue. It's easier to be like, oh, that's not my problem. Or that's yeah. not happening here. Well, I think it's, it, it also goes to show that, you know, um, the youth are I was reading some article the other day. They said they they got rid of the word woke because everybody's supposed to be so socially conscious. But the reality is that the youth of today, they are so much more open minded and so much more. Uh, privy to protesting and standing up for themselves. I think that's a great idea. It just sucks that they have to. Yeah, for sure. All right. Should we go out on a yeah. song? And Let's then... take a break and have some music and then we'll jump back into the national news. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. you're running from what you're going through where you're coming from what you're going through where you're coming from everybody everybody wants to know what you're gonna do where you're going to cause they want to come where i'm showing you yes they want to come where i'm showing you all that you can be is a spectacle following after every single miracle to 
All right, guys. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. That was Guarding the Gates by Miss Lauren Hill. That's her new track. Um, first release song in five years, and it is on the upcoming Queen and Slim soundtrack. So definitely, I like the vibe. It took me back to the to the old Lauren that we yeah, love. Yeah, I'm always rooting for her. I know she's had some struggles, but yeah, she's not out yet. So. Exactly, right? And maybe this will be her, her comeback that we all been waiting for. All right, Jasmine. So bring us back with some national news. Okay, so I just realized maybe when I when I think of a national story, I think of something that's happening not in New York, but in the U.S. Yeah. So maybe that's not. But, you know, this does seem, in my opinion, like relevant for the rest of the country because it involves the First Amendment. Okay. so this is from The New York Times. Um, What day is it today? The 22nd? 4th? 4th. Yeah. So the article (laughs) was from the 22nd was from this Friday. So the the Indiana University at Bloomington has a professor named Eric Rasmussen or Rasmussen who was recently, I guess, put on blast on Twitter for some things that he's been putting out there that are racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. And the provost of the university, um, Professor Lauren Roble, made a decision that um, even though she personally doesn't agree with what he's saying that it would be a violation of his first amendment rights to get rid of this person. Mm. Um, So professor Rasmussen, just as an example, has argued that gay men should not be teachers. He's referred to women as the weaker sex and said that colleges have lower standards for accepting black students than white, white students. And he's been posting these things on the internet for years. Wow. Um, But they were only, brought like to the public eye uh, recently when a popular Twitter account flagged um, some of his tweets. Um, so Professor Robles said in an interview on Friday that even though she personally doesn't want this person on campus, that she wanted to be frank and honest with students about what the university could do, um, because these are things in her words that he says on his own time in his own space. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if you can really argue that the internet is your own space, but whatever. Um, Selena Drake, a student, a senior that's studying law and public policy, said that she understood the that speech needed to be protected, but that the provost denunciation didn't protect students. Pro- according to her, Professor Rasmussen's public posts alone were enough to make his classroom a hostile environment for female, gay, and black students. I understand that. Yeah, so rather than get rid of him, rather than fire him, uh, he is a tenured professor, but the school claims that that's not why they made this decision. Um, the university has altered its policies to allow students to transfer out of his classes. No one will be required to take them to satisfy degree requirements. Mm. And they will also make the professor grade student assignments without knowing whose they are. Because, you know, the thinking would go like if he knows that you're a black student, if he knows you're a woman, et cetera, that he's going to grade you differently. What a Um, mess. uh, Yeah, hot shitty mess. Um, Rasmussen wrote in an email that he does not hide his Christianity and believes students and professors should set aside their moral objectives in favor of trying to maximize social welfare. I don't want to know what that would look like in his mind. <laughs> right. Um, the provost says that she and other officials have encouraged former students or colleagues to come forward if they thought they had been discriminated against. 
um, Michaela Auckland is the person who um, retweeted images of the professor's tweets because a student shared them with her via a private message. So the post that contains some of the shit he was saying, which I won't repeat, has been seen more than 2.5 million times. Wow. So, yeah, um, there's a professor not at the school, but at Cornell University, Riza or Riza Leibovitz, mm-hmm. a professor of labor and employment law, said the university was right to be careful about punishing Rasmussen for things that he expressed outside of his job. So, according to her, general fears of the effect of the extramural speech don't substitute for evidence. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, wow. This is a there was a similar situation like this in New York just a couple of weeks ago. Um, can't with speak. that CUNY guy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So this is this is like a thing. Right. Um, I definitely think it's it's awkward because it's a higher education institution where um, ideals normalcy is challenged and you are encouraged to discover your ideas. But this I mean, for some reason, this feels different than that. This feels like just hatred being spewed. What do you guys think? Um, I don't. I, when I think of the First Amendment and I'm not a lawyer, but that means like the government can't come and take you away because of something that you said. Not everything that's protected under the law is acceptable in your place of employment. Like in New York City, I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but here, if I wanted to take my shirt off and just be completely topless, blowing in the wind, I could. The cops aren't allowed to stop me. If I go to my job and do that, yeah, they can yeah. say you're making people uncomfortable. What like a, this isn't. D- does your job also have that, um, what they call at will employment? Yeah, like I am a part of the union. Okay. So it is like it's not as easy to maybe fire someone without cause. Okay. But even with a tenured professor, like you can be terminated for cause. Yeah. So it depends on what does the institution decide is cause enough for you to be a danger to your students or for you to be creating an an um a an inhospitable an inhospitable or hostile learning environment. Okay. So I mean, I guess if he's not being discriminatory within the classroom or spewing this stuff too. His students, you know, I guess that's a um, a case for him to be able to be defended. But ultimately, this is about character, right? What do you think, Matt? Well, it's so he he works for a state school. So I, I understand why they're like kind of trying to be careful about First Amendment implications. Because I assume that means it's connected with the government. But if you he's not proposing controversial ideas that uh some would view as racist or not. He's saying, assumably, because I didn't read the tweets, but the way that they depicted them just like sound like they're just like factually incorrect things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like women, like that. there's scientific reasons why there's more male geniuses than female geniuses and women are ruining like feel and like posting articles to things like that. It was pretty extreme. Yeah. And so like if he, I would make the argument he, shouldn't be fired because he's sexist and racist, but because he's proving that he's a bad professor because he's promoting inaccurate, you know, like if, if you're an engineer professor and they discover that like you, uh, you believe in antiquated methods of design that would make buildings fall down, you get fired for incompetence. Mm. And I understand that they don't want to get into this argument of like, trying to declare what's sexist and what's not. 
But if you're you have a professor that is espousing incorrect idiot things, like you you should be able to get fired for being an idiot, hmm. right? Well, I mean, the guy from the guy in New York, the CUNY professor, he did. Um, he was fired for the things that he said, and I actually had an opportunity to speak with some of the students that were his students. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much like they were really overwhelmed with the thought that this is what he was thinking while he was teaching them. Right. He was, you know, like he was teaching psychology, yeah. you know, so of all things to be teaching. Um, but then you spewing all of this hatred, you know, moonlighting on a show. So it's almost like um, the students definitely felt the effect of that. One thing about this story that I think is good is that they did offer them an opportunity to transfer out of this professor's class. But ultimately, who's going to sign up for it if they're not made? So he his career may be over mm. anyway. You know what I mean? Maybe not legitimately done, but he may have ended himself. Yeah, yeah. sounds awful. I, I think one question that kind of came to mind while listening to this is what place in the world do we have for people that are uh, homophobic, sexist, and racist? Like, if you have these beliefs and it does, and it actually doesn't apply to your job, then it would, yeah, what would you, yeah, it'd be so like, let's say you're, you're an Uber driver and you're like a white supremacist, mm-hmm. um, like, do you exist? Do you have the right to exist? Is basically the question. Like, do you get to have employment if you have these thoughts? I mean, well, honestly speaking, we all have thoughts that we're probably not that proud to share. You know, that shouldn't stop you from being your ability to do your work. I think what's different from Uber in this situation is this is a higher education institution. This is a place where people go to elevate themselves in society, not just, you know, get from to to from here to there you know so i think the industry for me sticks out in this story because if this is the industry that's supposed to produce the next leaders and kind of you know share that future wave of of people with open-minded thoughts and things like that you know it's conflictual i wouldn't want to learn from a person like that i also think that sometimes when we when that question is posed it's like the true answer is those people are already everywhere mm-hmm. all the time in all different types of places of employment. They exist. Absolutely. Like there's racist doctors, racist nurses, teachers everywhere. And they do. I, I think one issue that really gets under my skin is the idea that it's possible to have those types of thoughts and beliefs and not have an impact your work. So like just because you don't have like sheets on your head and you're screaming things, if you like if you have those beliefs like we already know what the death rates are for black people giving birth mm-hmm. you're going to see someone who looks like you maybe and have one reaction and treat them one way as opposed to a different person so i think um the issue where it becomes like a work thing it's like these are individuals that don't even have the presence of mind to think like okay this is not a nice thing to say i don't want someone to think that i will treat them differently so I'm not going to put these like thoughts out there like they know full well, like that it's not socially acceptable, even though it exists yeah. to say these types of things. And they still have the audacity to do it, knowing it's going to make people in their care uncomfortable or unable to learn. Mm. So I, I don't mean, know. It's like people, people's got to eat and they are eating. They've been eating. Exactly. <laughs> With right? these, you know, some of them even get to run countries i was just about to say the first amendment is totally the american way i mean to be honest it's like when has being racist sexist homophobic anything ever stopped a white man from being able to 
live That's his true. life, you know, but yet they're advocating for people to not exist for real. And if it's the other way around, such as the Black Panthers who were creating community centers and feeding children and teaching, you know, they shut those institutions down and yeah. made it very difficult for them to stand on their soapbox about the things they believed in. So yeah, it's like it's been a long enough where people are afraid or unable to live just because of who they are and not necessarily what they believe so if you're being this is the definition of being judged by the content of your character Mm -hmm. and not the color of your skin (laughs) so now it's your turn (laughs) welcome you can't just do whatever the hell you want like Mm. you know so it's an interesting space thank you for that research jasmine definitely some great topics yeah Uh, hopefully the um indiana University Bloomington or whatever the school is was listening up and they get some get the guts to right know. get him out of here. Why is yeah, that I mean they're a state school. Like, well, what's what's gonna? I don't know. I, I mean, there's so much like legal shit that we need to work for because we haven't been uh, holding people responsible. Yes. So it's like legally, he's got tenure, First Amendment. It's like, well, all right, if we're gonna have to do this, getting rid this of is like a reason. A, <laughs> an awful person who's in a position of power, like that might be the hill to uh, to die on, as the expression goes. Yeah, these institutions need to step up, you know. All right. So let's change lanes here. Matt, what's going on, dude? I have such a boring story. <laughs> That's I, OK. Break up the monotony here. I'll, I'll, I'll just fly through it. Um, it's more an exploration, exploration of me um, hanging out online. OK, so. When I'm, as, when I'm assigned a national story for objection to the rule, I go to Al Jazeera to try to get another perspective on U.S. issues, or as non-U.S. media organizations call it, U.S. and Canada. It's, that's like how it's grouped together. I always thought like Canada like would feel great. It's like, hey, we're, you know, we're with that highly populous, uh, powerful country beneath us. That was your Canadian voice. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> My friends are offended. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sorry. So, jeez. I don't know. Oh, well, wow. I just do my Minnesotan <laughs> voice whenever I try to do a Canadian voice. Okay, so let's brace for some some tough, some heavy issues. Okay? Turns out this story... Pff, I got this dumb intro. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, I think we should skip the story. Basically, Al Jazeera was reporting on how there's going to be a big snowstorm coming in for this Thanksgiving. And I just kind of thought it was cute that Al Jazeera was like, oh, these U.S. travelers, like 55 million people hitting the road, 4.5 million on planes, and they're going to hit travel. <laughs> and it's like, you know we have bigger issues. Right? That's their world news, right? But but if, if you, you want to take a breath and like talk about U.S. Uh, traffic congestion around a holiday that... Only the U.S. celebrates. I th- I thought that was kind of nice. What are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? Any plans? I'm sticking around. All right. I will be in Alabama. Hey, eat something good for me. I will do my best. Well, yeah, that I will do. Yeah. Yes. So I'll be cooking, helping, spending time. So I'm looking forward to that. And hopefully there won't be snow. How are you traveling? I'm flying. Okay. So I'm flying out on Wednesday. So when I read this, Matt, I got kind of anxious because I'm <laughs> flying out on Wednesday and I'm coming back on Sunday. So oh, I hope okay. I don't get run caught into up, right? any bad weather. But Well, I'll be here in Brooklyn volunteering with an organization called Heights and Hills. Um, this is my second time doing it. I'll be in the kitchen this time. And okay. um, yeah, they pretty much do a community meal for seniors and people who are homebound. And then they host one at a church downtown 
Brooklyn and invite the community. So it's a very international Thanksgiving because people who don't traditionally celebrate normally come to the meal. Mm. Um, oh. Definitely a good time. What are you making? Whatever they tell me. Oh, okay. I'm just going <laughs> to pull my hair off and get down and dirty. But I'm looking forward to it. In my family, traditionally, I make the collard greens. So okay. I may still do that. Just, you know. Good. What's it called again? Heights and Heights and Hills is the name of the organization. And hills, like yeah. little mountains. Heights and hills. Oh, yeah, okay. so little it's in Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Heights and hills. Yeah, so it's a great organization. Uh, it's been really it, the first time I did it. I felt I was so filled and definitely nice to share this um, holiday tradition. Um, so yeah, so I wish you all the best of luck in your travel plans. We're gonna go ahead and take another music break. You are listening to Objection to the Rule. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Give me the green light. Just one night. Doing good, guys. I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready know, to right? go right now. So. Checking your smile, working your back like it's going out of style. Shake just a little bit faster. Shake just a little now, girl. I'm dying to meet you, so let's mess around. Got an obsession with us getting down. Come just a little bit closer. I just need permission, so give me the Green Light by John Legend, a.k.a. People's Sexiest Man of the Year. Do we agree with that? See, now, I, <laughs> I don't fully, I don't agree, but I feel like people came down so hard on him. And I'm like, they have had way, like, more regular looking people than John Legend. Like, he's, I think he looked better younger. Who doesn't? Right. <laughs> but he's not that bad. People were really going in on him. My friend told me that he looks just like his wife. <laughs> oh, I mean that's not he bad. He looks like Arthur. That's true. Yeah, he looks yeah. like Arthur. He knows he looks like Two Arthur. Two little sleepy eyes. Well, I like John Legend. He's from um, the great state of Ohio, like myself. Okay. Um, oh, okay, we got we got some a finger on the scale there. Listen, I can't help it. You, you got a roof for Tony Morrison. You know, great. Oh, shout out to Tony Morrison. Uh, that's another day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to the news, guys. All right. So the next, I'm going to bring you guys the world news. Um, this story, I'd like to call it "Purple Protest in France." Uh, marches have been held in dozens of French cities to condemn to condemn femicide and other forms of gender-based violence. The marches come at the end of nearly three months of consultations launched by the French government. 
Protesters accused the authorities of turning a blind eye to femicide issues plaguing the country. Some reports say that 137 women have been killed this year by their partners. So femicide, it is a term that is used um, in this, I guess, culture of um, domestic violence where most of the victims are women. Um, The femicide rate in France is higher than it is in most countries in Europe. The most recent Eurostat data from 2017 shows that more women were killed in France than in England, Italy, Spain or Switzerland. Romania and Northern Ireland are also at the top of the list and they clearly have a problem. Unlike the rest of the UK and Ireland, Northern Ireland does not have a law criminalizing the use of coercive control on a partner. Many people believe that culture is partly to blame. The French language has been considered a systemic tool that promotes patriarchy and sexist ideology. For example, in French grammar rules, um, they give the masculine form of a noun precedence over the feminine form. The language used in the media is also important, says Leah Lejeune. She's a journalist who's a part of a feminist group, Prenons La Une. That's the French explanation. I think it's um, basically talking about just expression in media. The expression crime passionale, which is crime of crimes of passion, have been used to undermine efforts to tackle this issue because it romanticizes murder. It implies that because you are so much in love, you can kill people. Feminist groups have lobbied to change the structure of the French language in favor of a more inclusive gender neutral version. In the last two years, the national newspaper Liberation has made coverage of femicide a priority, conducting an in-depth investigation into the numbers of murders committed from January 2017 onward. Advocacy groups raising awareness about domestic violence believe the law enforcement must do more to protect and support women who are reporting abuse from their spouses. Um, So this one hit home for me in my day job. I am a Title IX coordinator um, at a college. So this is definitely something that um, I talk about often and recently just held in a, an advocacy and awareness event with our community partner, Safe Horizons, just bringing some light and shedding some um, information to young women who may be victims of this. But it's not just women in this story. Definitely it is. But domestic violence happens um, more frequently in same sex relationships, actually. Um, but this is very interesting. Uh, considering that it's 2019, that there's not formal laws in place and things of that nature to protect women. It's pretty scary to think that you're, it's OK for your husband or your spouse to beat you and get away with it. Um, so any thoughts on this topic, guys? Ooh. I know it's heavy. <laughs> I know it's heavy. Well, what's your um, I mean, male violence is, is just so. Um, so prominent. Uh, what 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 are your feelings when you're when you as since I'm I'm male um, as like non males walking around seeing um, these like you know large bodies that commit you know I don't know what the number is but ninety ninety five percent of violent crime what's it like just like knowing that and like walking the streets are it's you asking do you feel, right are you asking do we feel safe yeah. Um, I mean, for the most part, you know, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. So I often stand on a soapbox saying that I have to feel safe. Like I can't be timid. I do notice in relationships now that um, um, I move slow. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm definitely a lot more aware of the signs of abuse because it's not all physical. A lot of it is mental, emotional. And what people right, don't know, yeah. there's also another form that's financial, which pretty much blocks you from doing other things or stops your progress in life. So 
I feel safe, but I'm on alert, I think would be yeah. the safest way to say it. It's like once you've had those experiences, because it's, um, so I have, well, it's something that's been in my family like mm-hmm. for quite some time. So like I have a different radar than someone who maybe has had no firsthand experience um, with that. And it really does change you. And it, cha- well, not everyone, but I know for myself, it does change the way you move in the world and the way you see people, mm-hmm. um, which can be, I guess, good in the sense that like Teresa was saying like if someone approaches me and the first thing they're doing is like talking down or like saying backhanded stuff like it's funny that's an automatic like no because people will start out with shit like that and then the next thing you know like they think it's okay to say something more aggressive or to do other things to bring down your self-esteem and that's part of the things that we teach in the advocacy and awareness uh, with title nine is the signs you know, recognizing the signs and trying to, you know, just be aware when somebody's trying to manipulate you or what the different behaviors are. Um, but a protest of this size, I don't think it's been done in the U.S. concerning this issue. Women's rights. Yes. Women's liberation. Yes. But domestic violence. I, hmm. I would be curious to I would be curious to know, like, what the numbers are, because even though it's framed like a world story and it's focused on France, like it is such an it's a ubiquitous, like global thing that we mm-hmm. deal with a lot here. There was a recent episode of Reveal with Al Letson and they talked about um, police officers having such high rates of being domestic abusers Mm. but being able to keep their gun and then going home and eventually like shooting their spouse and and how there's so many things that happen culturally to cover those things up or where certain things don't even get entered into statistics because of the way like stuff was handled in the court or there was some kind of agreement to not make it look as severe so yeah like i hope that there's more of a movement towards um getting not just men, but overwhelmingly, like it's a lot of men committing these acts of violence against women, children and other people, mm-hmm. you know, for them to stop doing it, you know, because there's only so much that prevention or trying to be safe is going to do. If someone is determined to hurt you, that's going to happen. Or like you could be the victim of someone um, unwittingly or just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And someone goes on some kind of a rampage because he's mad about something his kids did. Yeah, people get triggered. So what's been done right now to tackle uh, what's happening in France? President Emmanuel Macron has launched a French campaign at a National Domestic Violence Hotline Center. And Prime Minister Philip, he pledged $5.5 back in September to create a thousand more places in emergency accommodations for women who are victims of domestic violence. He also encouraged the appointment of a specialized prosecutor in courts to handle cases of domestic violence more quickly, as well as an audit of the police handling the domestic abuse cases. So there's a start. Yeah, Yeah, there's supposed to be some um, they're waiting on something to happen on Monday. Some other sort of uh, legislation to be changed um, concerning the, the march itself. But it happened all over the country of France. So definitely shout out to those ladies for standing up. But definitely more more to come on this story, I think, um, in a near in a near episode of OTR. All right, Matt, you want to take us out with our with our last world news story? Yes, this was uh, coming from Sarah, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu indicted on fraud charges Mm. on Thursday. Prime Minister Netanyahu was indicated, indicated, 
indicted on fraud charges relating to briber, bribing media for favorable news coverage. The public, I guess our guy doesn't have to do that. He just uh, gets it for free. <laughs> the pub, uh, this is the quote, the public interest requires that we live in a country where no one is above the law. Attorney General Vichai Mandelblit said in a televised evening news conference, the New York Times, that comes from the New York Times. This case is particularly noteworthy in its coinciding with the impeachment proceedings of Mr. Trump, where he has also been accused of acting, quote, above the law. Netanyahu has denied the charges and called them lies, something we have seen Trump do as well. Many voters have expressed that the indictment will change their minds about the upcoming vote, which may complicate elections to uh, which may complicate elections to a third round of voting. These proceedings are slow, but surely strengthening the center-left candidates in Israel, and again calling into question the media's role in politics, another striking parallel to the current U.S. political climate. It will be interesting to see how the indictment plays out and if it has any relation to Mr. Trump's impeachment outcomes. Mr. Netanyahu is not required to step down as of yet, but he will be if convicted. Mm, mm, so mm. they can. Um, I, I was surprised that um, anything was, was coming back to, to get him, but uh, it is refreshing to see that the opposition to Netanyahu has has been able to do some stuff. And politically, the, the structure of the Israeli government kind of allows for more of a check and balances because this third round of voting is because he couldn't get a coalition government. Is that mm. right? Mm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, our government seems to kind of be a winner takes it all. <laughs> I don't know, man. The chickens are coming home to roost, it seems like. I feel like um, something's definitely going to come out about some connection between the two. I'm just I'm just saying I reported on something like this not too long ago. And I feel like the timing, as Sarah was saying in the story, um, is definitely the tide is changing. You know, I don't know if it's that 2020 energy coming in and everything shutting down. But um, can you imagine? Being indicted and, and being the prime minister of the country at the same time. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's grounds for all hell breaking loose, right? Yeah. yeah. He who lives shall see. <laughs> right. See what happens. All right. Well, I do have a short good news story. I'm going to try to give it to you guys because I think it's so great. Um, so an Indiana man sign at the age Chicago Bears game prompts a search for a new kidney. This is a really cool story. Uh, while most sports fans show off homemade signs in hopes of some FaceTime on television, a Chicago Bears fan from Indiana, Marcus Edwards, had a different goal in mind during his last Sunday's game. Edwards, in a desperate need for a kidney transplant after, after receiving devastating news this summer that he was experiencing acute kidney failure. Edwards is currently on dialysis five days a week, which his wife helps to facilitate in addition to her work hours and caring for four children. A fellow fan, Jessica Jenkins, sat next to Edwards and his wife, Chantel, at the game on Sunday. While he was eagerly trying to get the attention of the cameras to spread the news of his medical need, Jenkins took action and captured a photo of his sign and shared it across social media. She then took it a step further and created a GoFundMe for Edwards and his family and his potential donor to offset the cost of maintaining dialysis, medication, kidney transplant, um, that will come an anti-rejection medication. And lastly, the donors lost work time. Um, so just on average, a kidney transplant costs $250,000. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So she started this GoFundMe um, and definitely she spread to some sentiments basically saying as a father, it's a challenge for him to watch the children cope with the challenges that they are facing with this medical condition. So on Friday, Jenkins updated her Facebook post and she said, your responses have been amazing. I told you we could do this. Thank you. Marcus has responded to over a thousand text message and a hundred calls. Several people have called in to inquire and start the testing process. They will be reviewing his case this upcoming Tuesday. Talk about caring for your fellow man, right? Um, so just, you know, shout out to Miss Jenkins for doing that for them um, and for this family. I know it definitely puts some hope into their minds, but, you know, the match has not been made. So Edward's blood type is O positive. And if you're interested, you can also be tested. Um, even if you're not the same blood type, you should get tested just to check. To help, you can contact the Living Donor Program at 859 323 2467 and tell the transplant coordinator that you are calling on behalf of Marcus Edwards of Jeffersonville, Indiana. How nice is that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I hope that it works out for him. Yeah, me too. I mean, and shout out to Miss Jenkins for it's, you know, just helping out in that situation. Who knew they were going to sit next to each other at this game? Yeah, let's let's all let's all go out and um uh, sign up to get our uh, kidneys given away. I was just <laughs> thinking about that the other day. I was like, why why don't I do that? Cuz it's like you could like help someone you could out. Save a life. I mean, you know? it's it's not as simple as just take out and you're you'll be you're subject like later on to uh, certain things, but not it's worth it. I think. Yeah. So I, I challenge everyone. If anybody signs up to get put on the list to donate a kidney uh, before me, uh, we'll give you a shout out on air, and uh, you'll shame me into uh, finally doing it. Yeah. Just. Uh Put a post onto our Facebook page and let us know. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or iTunes podcast. Uh, listen up next for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to close out with one last song for the day. This is Sacrifice by The Roots with Nelly Furtado from the Phrenology album. See you next week. Bye. Bye. It's like arachnids Drastic, it ain't plastic It's pro-blackness Grown man tactics No pediatrics The kind of track That make the comeback Miraculous The catalyst Thought with the knack For splashing I'm dashing I mastered the craft of mashing The level-headed Thoroughbred The female's passion Magnetic attraction Be keeping them asking The crew's in a Cadillac With the pendant grassing Swerve half-naked Won't come near crashing But if I go to heaven Would y'all know